Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. much to report. Uh, the, uh, the OPEC decision is made every month, and they are pretty systematic at this point in restoring, restoring 400,000 barrels a day per month. And no matter what the U.S. says or the Biden administration says, pretty unlikely they'll vary from that. Demand is strong, and remember, with oil, you got to talk worldwide demand to the extent that there starts to be, you know, planes from Europe and things like that. That really helps on jet fuel, gasoline demand. You know, you can't you can't just look at it in the U.S. You got to look at it worldwide. is pretty strong, and there's a huge backwardation in. I mean, your current price is in the low 80s. But your price out two years is like 63 or four. It's possible, I suppose, to have oil pricing higher in the near term. After all, LNG in Europe and in China got to $30. BTO equivalency is six to one. So $30 gas is times six is $180 oil. So at the very least, some of the Users who'd otherwise be using LNG will use oil for making power, you know, in, in Asia and, and things where LNG might otherwise be used, and that'll increase more demand. What happens next is a little unclear, but you have to keep in mind that with all the SG pressure on the shells and BPs and, and our large companies, there will be less less investment in trying to overcome the decline curve. Every well goes down. If you take all 92,000 barrels a day of oil and NGLs that are produced, probably the overall decline curve is probably 7 or 8%. So you got to spend a lot of money every year just to reverse the decline curve. Oil probably will do pretty well. The oil companies, in, mostly in the Permian, are, are doing fine. The key is to spend not more than two thirds of your cash flow and and try to have some incline in your production. That is extremely hard to do. The stock transactions that you see one mer- company merging into another is by managements and boards that kind of realize how hard it is to do. And by doing a consolidation, you can maybe save some GNA and whatnot. And so expect to see more of those. They generally happen at pretty small premium. I mean, that's like Concho and the Costco, that's like the BPX and Devon, that's like uh, Abbott and Simarex, which is a gas company with, with kind of a gas plus oil company. So we're, we're uh, 
you know, I think the money, to tell you the truth, in the oil-based companies, I think the money has been made. I mean, could oil trade significantly higher? Yes. Is it sustainable at that level? Probably not. These companies, the Pioneer, Diamondbacks, Devon, EOG, they're trading about a 10% free cash yield. That's free cash after CapEx related to debt plus equity. Are they going to trade higher than that? Maybe, but also maybe not. Gas stocks, which are primarily Marcellus stocks, there, there really isn't an independent gas company of any note that it isn't at least more than half Marcellus and Utica. Those companies, with the exception of Cabot and not Chesapeake, have yet to start dividends. Interestingly enough, those companies, especially if gas is going to trade at 350 in the future, not 270 or 280, those companies probably have another 30-40% potential in them if they start dividends. So EQT hasn't started, Antero hasn't started, Southwestern hasn't started, CNX hasn't started. Cabot, because of the merger with Simrex, does have a dividend. Chesapeake has started a dividend, but remember Chesapeake came through bankruptcy, zeroing out their common stock. So, I mean, that that's not necessarily a, a, a good precedent. It just sound like wet blanket, but I, I think the money that's been made with the recovery of these stocks is probably made. I, I don't know how much investment potential there is from this point forward. As far as the midstream companies, midstream companies, the kinders and enterprises and whatnot, do have the problem of fairly flat production. I mean, our oil production was 13 million barrels a day. Now it's 11. Pretty unlikely it's going to be more than 11. Our gas production is is increasing a little bit, but it's it's pretty set too. So for midstream companies with volumes not going up, you know, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. They also have to keep their capital spending down, get their debt down, cover their distribution. Uh, with that briefing on oil and gas, which I do, you know, every Wednesday, I'd like to hit a couple of macro political things before we turn it over to Mike. The change, the possible or likely change in the Federal Reserve leadership is not good for the capital markets. I mean, it looks like this Larry Brainerd will be the new chairman and a couple of the key uh, participants in the Open Market Committee are retiring or being forced to retire. What's going to come out of this is a much less experienced Federal Reserve. The extent that we have a problem like we had in the fall of 08, or we had, you know, in March of 20, you're not going to have the same amount of experience at the Federal Reserve. And it's kind of a bit politicized. I mean, it's Elizabeth Warren saying she won't vote for Powell's renomination. But that's not necessarily a good thing. The other, the other thing to watch, and I am going to try to do more reading and, and any, anyone, anything on the phone that you can send in to Diane would be interesting. And Mike will be on the lookout too. There was a column over last weekend in the Financial Times that talked about who actually owns the $22 trillion of federal debt that's outstanding in the public hands. The U.S. debt is about 28 or 29, but about five or six or so is either for Social Security trust funds or is owned by the Federal Reserve. Now, that Federal Reserve balance sheet has got to come down. So, But let's just say $22 trillion of debt. Who actually owns it? 
I may have misinterpreted the column, and it was a column. It wasn't. It wasn't reporting. It was a. It was kind of an opinion piece. But the point they were making is that how much of it is owned by people who who don't, or hedge funds, or government bond dealers, who basically are not final investors in ten-year bonds at one and a half percent. They're actually acquiring money in the repo market. The repo market is overnight loans against collateral. Most of the time in the repo market, collateral is U.S. government securities. So in the repo market, the rate is about like the Fed funds rate, which is around 25 basis points. And if you borrow 25 basis points and you buy a 10-year bond for yielding 1.5%, you're clearing a, a pretty healthy return, uh, let's say 30 basis points, let's say, and for 150. So you're clearing 1.2%. And because your collateral is good, you can do 30 to 1. In other words, your your debt can be 30 times the amount of equity you have uh, supporting that trade or the amount of equity you have in your hedge fund. The problem is if the security starts to change in value, like if interest rates start to go up, uh, that means the price comes down. How much can the price come down before you're in a lost position? Well, if, if interest rates go up 20, 30 basis points, that can cause enough principal loss so you have a lost position. What would happen then is that there'd be like long-term capital, which you know, which went bust many years ago. The Fed would have to come to the rescue. And you could have a situation like you had in 08 or no one trusts anyone. If you're participating in the repo market, in other words, if you're a uh, money market fund and you're putting money into the or or a big pension fund and you're putting you're parking money in effect in the repo market, it's pretty easy to get paid back. You just don't lend the money the next day. It's an overnight market, and it came completely unglued in March of '20, and in November December of '08 it came completely unglued. So. I'm a little concerned about this change in the guard kind of based on, you know, Democrats and especially the left wing of the Democratic Party not being a very good idea. That being said, I absolutely shouldn't run for the hills or buy puts or, or, or sell half your stock positions. It's just something to be aware of. And with that, I've uh, chewed through half our time. Let's, let's swing over to uh, Mike. He's got, uh, Mike and I talked earlier. Get some really interesting uh, uh, new new companies to uh, two new companies to discuss this afternoon. So over to you, Mike. Sure. So look, we're going to continue the topic of vertically uh, vertical specific SaaS companies. But before I do, I guess I should update since we've been mentioning this the last few weeks. The cloud multiples they've ticked up again, and now are over sixteen as of the last reading on the index that I looked at. So 16 times next 12 months revenue would be the, the average or the median for the, for, the, for the group in that index. As we're sort of seeing, at least in the short term, that this is, tends to be somewhat related to the 10-year uh, treasury rate. These, the companies we'll talk about today are, for the most part, a part of that index. They're software as a service companies, both, both of them growing relatively quickly. They're both in the restaurant industry. So we've got a kind of a, a nice topic to focus on since restaurants were so severely disrupted during COVID 
I think these are particularly interesting. I also think that they are representing a major shift in an industry that's sort of behind the times when it comes to a technology perspective. The two companies are, are called Olo, and that is the ticker is O-L-O. And the second one is called Toast, and the ticker for that one is T-O-S-T. So for a restaurant, not too long ago, a restaurant could operate literally as a no-tech business. They could rely on walk-in customers in a community and even accept only cash, not even have to worry about digital payments. Uh, today, those days are gone. If you survived COVID-19, you would have had to figure out how to manage a much more complex set of circumstances and adopt some technology in order to do that. Uh, and the co- companies we'll, we'll discuss today enable business uh, restaurants to be able to do that. So thinking about the modern restaurant, there is a lot of moving parts and the restaurant operates not only as a showroom, but also a manufacturing facility, a training facility for its staff, all of the back-end operations, everything has to happen within the walls of that, that particular restaurant, especially on the smaller scale. So it's everything from payments, payments to financing and making, payroll and HR, benefits, scheduling, insurance, recruiting, reporting and analytics, accounting, wait lists and reservations, table management, kitchen operations, inventory, supplier management, point of sale, kiosks in the case of quick serve, time clocks for staff, mobile ordering, scan to pay, your website, your marketing, your loyalty loyalty cards. And then add to that, one of the key drivers during the pandemic was takeout, drive-through, and third-party delivery. Companies like DoorDash and Postmates and Uber Eats all made a big impression on that industry. In some ways, helped them a lot, but also added some additional challenges to, to restaurants in the way that they manage their business. Interestingly, the restaurant industry has one of the lowest levels of digitization and technology spending is around 3%, less than 3% of total sales. So, you know, even though many companies have adopted, many restaurants have adopted this technology, there's still quite a bit of room to run. So with the introduction of DoorDash and Postmates, uh, one restaurateur describes it like this. We're in tablet hell for a couple of reasons. One, the tablets themselves are a burden because you've got to make sure they're all turned on. You must make sure that the app is activated and sometimes the iPad will need to refresh or reboot and then won't automatically restart. Sometimes team members unplug it and then it goes dead. Every one of these aggregated platforms like DoorDash and Postmates, they have a separate iPad and they get their separate tickets from them. That makes it difficult to manage and certainly the antiquated point of sale systems that they had a lot of restaurants still operate on weren't capable of operating them so if you go to your your local restaurant whether it's like a small chinese restaurant or something like that i've noticed that at ours they've got three or four ipads that are on the wall and they are actively juggling them as they as they take their orders so th- these aggregators aren't all bad because one uh, they increase the average check sizes they expand the customer base, enable them to be discovered by customers that might not have known about them. they relatively easy to deploy. But like I said, the management is pretty challenging. Let me just, oh, let yeah. me just interject one thing that, that uh, surprised me when Mike and I were talking about this earlier today. 
Mike is not just talking about, you know, a local chain, you know, a local restaurant or a small chain of restaurants. These service companies will have Denny's or, or Chipotle or whatnot, uh, you know, big chains. Uh, uh, I kind of assume that these, these chains would be large enough so they'd have their own, develop their own systems, but apparently that isn't uh, the case. So it, 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 it's, uh, you know, to the extent, I mean, Chipotle's been one of the great stocks in the last 10 years. I mean, to the extent that these things are growing and taking market share, the extent you're in one of these software businesses, although, you know, providing service to them, that's, that's a plus. But over to you, Mike. Absolutely. And the two companies we'll discuss have slightly different objectives. Toast operates as an end-to-end software platform for managing a restaurant. And that could be a multi-location restaurant uh, or a single-location restaurant. Olo, on the other hand, operates a platform that's designed to integrate with your existing system, which is why they specifically target usually chains because they have a much larger footprint and tend to already have infrastructure uh, in place. So Olo will enable an existing brand, which which... For example, they, they list P.F. Kings, Applebee's, Cheesecake Factory, Chili's, Denny's, Five Guys, Jamba Juice, uh, Shake Shack, just to name a few of their, their big customers that are, that are nationwide. So those, those companies all already have software built out for their order management systems. But this enables them to connect to all the order aggregators, which would include, like I mentioned before, DoorDash, et cetera. It also enables them to run a couple options for delivery. One would be their own in-house delivery. And then two would be connecting to third-party delivery services, which a few of, uh, I believe Uber Eats is now offering that as well. But there, there's a number of other even regional third-party delivery services that uh, this platform will enable you to automatically select the preferred based on cost, time, et cetera, delivery partner for a particular online order. Olo versus Toast is much, much smaller. Its uh, market cap is about the tenth of the size. Its revenue is about 7% of Toast. I think the last quarter was $36 million versus 486 at Toast. That being said, it's growing at a faster rate. So it's valued at a higher new multiple. Olo is actually cash flow positive as of last year and I believe through the last few quarters as well. I'll pause here on Olo because that's the one Hunt and I talked about the most. So if you have any more questions on Olo, I'll, I'll cover those. Yeah, one, 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 thing, one thing that I've become convinced about, well, convinced is overstating the case. One of the things I suspect is that the way of looking at these software as a service businesses where you calculate kind of your adjusted free cash flow by adding back half of the marketing expense and half of the R&D expense may be proven to be too optimistic. Uh, The reason for that is that the marketing expense and the R&D expense may be as important holding on to your customers as getting new customers. I mean, the theory is that these things are growing 20% a year, 25% a year. If you wanted to compare them to businesses that aren't growing that quickly, 
you have to adjust adding back some of the marketing and, and the R&D. What could be happening, and, and, and we've discussed, uh, Mike has come up with you know, like a dozen of these things, uh, and, and then there's some very large, well-known ones like Snowflake. It just seems to me that we might be better off in trying to sort through these companies and finding ones that you, know, you can buy and hold for uh, half a decade or a decade in finding companies that are cash flow positive after their marketing expense and after their R&D. My partnership has made an enormous amount of money from NVIDIA. When you look at NVIDIA, it's always too expensive. But after marketing and R&D, uh, they have free cash flow. You don't have to make any adjustments. There, there, there is free cash flow. The company, actually, NVIDIA pays the dividend. So, and if you look at the large tech stocks, I mean, Apple has free cash flow. Amazon has free cash flow. Alphabet has free cash flow. So now I think Mike believes that, you know, I might be right, but I think he's more comfortable. And I can tell you people who invest in this area are more comfortable in, in making this adjustment to the cash flow. And, you know, I'm probably uh, being a bit of a, a wet shirt, you know, uh, on this subject. But uh, with that, it just, Mike, Mike is much more familiar with these companies and much more qualified to comment on, on that particular aspect of valuing them than I am. So back over to Mike. Yeah, I mean, on that point in particular, the the nice thing about vertical SaaS, which we covered last week, is that your expenditure on R&D tends to be lower than it would otherwise have to be because you're serving a specific customer rather than trying to please a very broad set of, of customers. Both Olo and Toast are full on restaurant businesses. So the plus side for the investor is that you're not seeing as large R&D and sales and marketing expenses. The downside that may not actually truly be a downside because I think investors may be underestimating this the downside that's perceived is that the market size is not necessarily that big. Both these, these companies estimate their addressable markets currently to be around $15 billion, but expect that to be able to expand that as they go international and expand their product offerings. So, you know, that's nothing to shake a stick at, at especially in, in an industry that's growing very quickly and doesn't have a ton of, of, of strong players. So, I think that's the question you need to come come to understand. And again, between Toast and Olo, these are two very different paths to market where Toast operates the software to, to manage the entire restaurant business. That is somewhat harder to do. And you're, you're kind of making a new restaurants adopting your, your platform where Olo is going to existing franchises, helping them adapt to the latest technology. So that's two approaches to the market, one sort of from the high end, one sort of from the lower end. Neither necessarily is the right way, but I think if you were if you decided this was an angle you wanted to go, you'd want to decide which approach to the market you were more comfortable with over the long term. Now, just in closing, Mike makes a great point because if your goal is to compound your money at 15% a year, which doubles your money in five years, there's some requirements here to pick companies that, that will do that. 
One is that they have good cash flow characteristics. They generate more cash than they use, which we've been discussing. Another is that they can grow. There aren't too many sectors of our economy that are growing too much more than, you know, our GNP uh, growth rate, which is around two or three percent. Now, remember, if you're talking about growth and you're not talking about real GNP, you're talking about including inflation. We had a kind of a shocking number this morning. Consumer price index is up 6.2% year over year. So let's say that the, the, the Biden administration, the Treasury Secretary, and, and uh, the, the Federal Reserve officials are, are right in saying inflation is transitory. Uh, but it's hard to imagine that inflation won't be 2 or 3%. In fact, that's what the Fed is targeting. That's what the Fed, not only the Fed, but other central banks, European Central Bank and the Japanese uh, uh, Bank of Japan. So if you have 2 or 3% real growth and 2 or 3% inflation, that's like 5 or 6%. 5 or 6% does not get you to a 15% compound rate of return. You have to be offering a service or a product that can take market share because that's how you get to that 15% range. And Olo or Toast, one of these things, they could get, so they're kind of saturated. In other words, if they, if they just get to, you know, like half the market, it's hard to grow at, at, at some point. You know, you just have such a high market share, it's hard to grow from that. And with that, we'll give we have a minute or two left for some closing remarks from Mike on that subject. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what we saw during COVID is that a lot of businesses had to were kind of forced into digitization, whether they wanted it or not. I think the new reality for restaurants is actually kind of exciting because it, with a software solution like Toast, a relatively small single or maybe two or three location restaurant can compete head to head with with a chain without having the capex expenditure capex and or r&d expenditure to build the infrastructure enabled to support a large business so i think this is a, a positive for the small guy in the long term and will probably drive better user experience over the long term as well Okay, well, everybody have a good good week, and we'll talk again next Wednesday. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.